Good morning, Gateway. Good to be together. It's John's birthday today. Yeah. Later on, when you're uh, obediently washing your hands, you can be singing happy birthday to John. Uh, it's great to see you today. If you're here for the first time, you're most welcome. You'll probably know if you've been here uh, over the last few weeks that we're in the middle of a preaching series called Why Bother? Uh, and just in case you think we're kind of fed up and about to close down the church, it's not a kind of, oh, why bother? It's uh, more that we're actually trying to seriously answer that question by challenging us to consider why we do the things that we do as followers of Jesus. Hence, why bother to pray or why bother to read the Bible and so on. And today, I'm going to ask the question, why bother to witness? Now, I just want to take a moment to explain what we mean when we talk about being a witness and witnessing in the context of the Christian faith. If you've watched any number of courtroom dramas, you'll know what it means to be a witness in that context. In a courtroom, a witness is someone who has expertise or experience to be able to say, this is what I've seen, this is what I know, now let me tell you about that. And so in that sense, for us to be a witness, to witness to our faith is, is not really all that different. We essentially should be people who are able to say to the world around us, I know Jesus, I've read his word, I've heard his voice, I know what he's like, let me tell you about that. That's what it means to be a witness. But the testimony of a witness is only as valid as their reliability as a witness. So if the person witnessing is a known liar, then you can't believe their testimony. Or if that person has proved themselves to be less than reliable at some point in the future, then that will affect their witness. In other words, how you live and what you stand for are important in establishing your credibility as a witness. And therefore, it's both what we say and how we live that reflects what we believe about God. That's ever so important to just keep in mind as we look at the subject this morning. Now, at Gateway, we use a set of five gospel identities to help us to distinguish between life before knowing Jesus and life as it should increasingly be as you come into relationship with him. And so we talk about moving from idolaters to worshippers. We talk about moving from orphans to being sons and daughters of God. We talk about moving from consumers and harmful consumerism to servants of God and of one another. We talk about moving from individuals and harmful individualization to family members. All of those talks can be heard from the previous four weeks on our website if you're interested. And our contention is that the way to do this, the antidote to idolatry or to having an orphan spirit or from harmful consumerism and from the kind of individualistic isolation of our age is to believe the deep truths of the gospel and to live them out. It's the gospel. It's always the gospel. And today, in the context of answering the question, why bother to witness, I'm going to take us through the fifth of these gospel identities. We're going to talk about the importance of and how to move from worldly to witness. Now, if you are 
motivated in this world primarily by, let's say, money or power or to climb the greasy pole, or if your prime consideration in this world is to make yourself big in the eyes of the world, if that's your central driving force, then you will, of course, reflect those values, not just in how you live, but in what you talk about and give your time and your energy to and give credit to and bear witness to. It's what you demonstrate to the world. We often see this with public figures, both positively and negatively, what they dress, what they drive, how they dress, what they say, how they spend their money. That all says something about their priorities and their values. And the problem here, of course, comes when you make the temporary values and trinkets of the world your primary aim, rather than making the eternal glories of Jesus your primary focus. That's what it means to move from worldly to witness. Let's uh, take a look at a passage of Scripture which highlights this really well. If you've got your Bibles or your phones or whatever you're using, we're going to be in Ephesians 2 today, so feel free to use that. Words will come up on the screen as well, but it's sometimes helpful to just have it open in front of you so you can reference the verses and that sort of thing. And this passage helps us to see what it means to live for the world under the full influence of the culture and the values of the world, what that looks like, and how the gospel calls us to live differently and to bear witness to Christ in all of our lives. So we're going to look at the first three verses in Ephesians 2. Let's read together. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. One of the most startling things about a passage like this is that when it, coming, when it comes to choosing how and what you will live for, it tells us that nobody is neutral. Paul writes this letter to Christians, but he's saying that before you were a Christian, you followed the ways of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That's another way of describing Satan. In other words, before you served God, whether or not you were aware of it, you served Satan's purposes because you followed the ways of this world instead of the ways of God. And consequently, you deserved God's displeasure and you were dead in your sin, not just kind of limping along or on life support, spiritually dead. That's pretty bleak language. And it's pretty binary too, just like those five gospel identities, either you're this kind of person or you're that kind of person. Either you'll be a worshiper of God or you can be an idolater, but you can't be both. Either you can live as a witness to God's faithfulness and goodness, or you can live for the applause and acceptance of the world, but you can't live for both. The essayist David Foster Wallace said this, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as atheism. I find that incredibly helpful. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we might get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, then you'll never have enough. 
Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Don't get me wrong, God has given us much about this world that we should enjoy, like sunsets and family and beautiful forests and barbecues, but we must also differentiate between those enjoyable things of the world and making any of those things our primary source of worship and satisfaction over and above the worship and the witness of God. In other words, you can live for God in his ways within his beautiful creation, or you can live for the desires of the flesh, the longings and desires of a self-centered, self-focused life. But you can't live for both. And the challenge, according to this passage, is that by nature, we are inclined towards self-focus. We naturally seek to achieve shelter and comfort and meaning. And so from birth, our hearts are ripe for amassing and attaining stuff. The verses I read in this passage make clear our problem. Let's look at this again. Verse 1. Before you knew Jesus, you were as good as dead. Verse 2. That's because you followed the ways of the world, which is ruled by Satan. Verse 3, that's because our flesh naturally desires these things. That's the problem we all face. Our hearts, our nature, lead us away from God's glory and supply, and they cause us to look inwards to make us and what we've done seem glorious. And we are powerless to resist that because we need and were created to worship something. And that's why we need the gospel. Because through the gospel, we are offered all the love and acceptance and comfort of being known and accepted and invited into relationship with God and adopted into his family and called a son or daughter. We're given a focus for our belonging and worship in Jesus. But the human nature draws us towards a distorted version of this love and belonging, and we try to satisfy that through worshiping our bodies or through meaningless sex or pornography or wrong relationships. Through the gospel, we are offered eternal life and the authority and honor of being seated with and highly esteemed by Christ. The Bible calls followers of Christ a royal priesthood. Princes and princesses in the kingdom of God. It tells us that we are welcome in his royal courts and to come to them today with confidence. That's what we're called into. But instead, the human nature draws us towards esteeming ourselves and we get sucked into living for the applause of man and the applause of world and, for, and, and grasping for power over each other for this short allotted time that we're given on earth. And if you multiply that problem into the lives and attitudes of 8 billion people alive today and watch it grow, it creates ever-hungry systems and structures that serve and promote the self rather than God and other people. 
And when you become more important than, in your own eyes than God, when you prefer your own well-being over that of your fellow man, then very close behind are poverty and hunger and injustice and war and racial discrimination and relational breakdown and loneliness and all the other subhuman values of this age. This is the way of the world, and it couldn't be further from living the way of Jesus, who denied himself all the trappings of earthly success and security in submission to the perfect will of the Father. They called him good, and he said, only God is good. They called him king, and he said, my kingdom is not of this earth. They said, come off that cross if you can. You call yourself the son of God. And he said, not my will be done, but the Father's. Part of the challenge of being called into a relationship with Jesus is that we need to recognize that without him, it doesn't actually matter how good you believe yourself to be or how much good stuff you do. You're still in need of saving. The reality is that there are many decent people in this world doing decent things, but the only way to live this life right is through relationship with God and in surrender to his purposes. One of Jesus' most enduring statements is this. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. If you're looking for the way this morning, if you feel wayward, Jesus says, I'm the way. Look at me. If you're looking for truth in a crazy post-truth world, he is the truth and he is the life. There really is only one way. The world can be a beautiful place filled with beautiful people doing beautiful things, but nothing is more beautiful than Jesus. And for me to say that to you this morning is for me to invite you to come and have a closer look. Once you see Jesus, once you really see Jesus, get, him to, know, get to know him for who he is, for how he's described in the Bible, you'll know that there is nothing that this world offers that you'd rather have. That's why we need the gospel, because the gospel calls us to live free of the clutches of the world. Jesus' death on the cross sets us free from all this stuff. That's why Christians talk so much about freedom, because of what Jesus won for us when, we went, when he went to the cross. We have freedom from sin, freedom from the siren song of the world, freedom from death, and full, rich, happy life in him. No need to strive or to prove yourself. No need to kind of hold up your merits to him and say, look at all that I've achieved. I'm, I'm surely worthy of you saving me now. That's just completely unnecessary and exhausting. It's the way the world does things, and it totally misses the point. God loves you, not because of what you've done, but because of what he's done and because of who he is. He's father. Good fathers love their kids just because they do. It's not about what they've done to earn it. He's the best father. Let's look at the rest of this passage in Ephesians. Then I'm going to give us three things to quickly think about um, in terms of how we move from worldly to witness. 
I've already said that in the first three verses, we've seen the problem. We've not followed our holy God. Instead, we've disobediently followed ourselves and searched for salvation in all the wrong places. And consequently, we're as good as dead. But here's the rescue that many of us here know, and it's available today in all its fullness. From verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our sins. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show us the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this even is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. He loves us, and he has given us Jesus. He's made us alive, and he has seated us in the place of the highest honor alongside the glorious Son, the Savior of mankind, the one by whom and for, all, for whom all things were made. He seated us beside him, Jesus, our brother, and we have done absolutely nothing to deserve it. It's come to us because of the mystery of grace given us by the glorious Savior, who says that even when you were living as an enemy of God, I have loved you, and I will overlook your offense, and I will give up my life for you so that you can know relationship with the Father. We get grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. This is what we learn about in Sunday school. So helpful to remember. What does verse 8 say again? For it's by making lots of money and stepping over every other person that you've been saved. No, for it is by grace that you've been saved, through faith. And even that is not from yourself. It's the gift of God. Here's how we move from worldly to witness. Three quick things. Number one, we've got to see the reality of the problem. 21 years ago, there was a film called The Matrix in which all mankind was in an induced coma and they were kept in these kind of storage tanks and their bodies were used to harness energy by aliens. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, was it really 21 years ago? It really was 21 years ago. And while mankind was all in this coma, they were kept in this kind of altered state of reality in which, to their own minds, they didn't know they were in a coma. Their brains told them that they were just alive and living in the real world, going to work, getting married, raising families. And this false reality was called the matrix. But all the while, the actual reality was that they were floating in these glass tanks with wires coming out of them, and they were as good as dead, just being drained of all that they were to harness energy for the aliens. Until an enlightened few wake up. And they realize that they aren't really living at all, that they're actually in a matrix, a false reality. It seems great to the mind, but actually they're all as good as dead in reality. We need, our world needs, to wake up from the matrix. The world looks beautiful. 
so many ways it is beautiful, but to live for the applause of the world rather than the glory of God puts us in a false reality. Worldly success and stature might taste sweet on the tongue, but to do it apart from God is like drinking poison. It's like living in the matrix. It's a false reality, and it's deadly to our souls. Life seems good. You've got the big house, you've got the bank accounts, everybody wants you, but in reality, you're in a coma. In fact, it's worse than that. It's verse one worse than that. You're dead. You are dead in your sin, and the world's allure is just too strong to wrestle free of by yourself. You need someone to save you. I'm not saying that you shouldn't work hard and enjoy the fruits of your labor. I'm just saying that you can't make those things ultimate. Jesus is ultimate. We need to look around our lives today and just make an honest appraisal. In what ways am I living apart from Christ? And what do I need to bring under his lordship again today? Maybe for some of you, today is a day to make this decision for the first time and bring your whole lives to him. You'd be most welcome to, and I or any one of the leaders here would be so happy to discuss that with you at any time after the service or whoever brought you this morning. Just, just ask the question. The second thing is to choose to love the right thing. Now, I know as much as anyone how easy it is to let your heart be captivated by the thought of having untold wealth and unlimited power and being the desire of everyone you come into contact with. It's easy to want those things, and it's easy to orient your heart in that direction. You don't really have to try hard at all. Every movie I watch and every book I read tells me that success comes from being more than I am, from owning more than I do. That's literally the way of the world. I was in Glasgow with John uh, a while back on a miserable rainy evening and we walked past a billboard and uh, it had a picture of a good-looking airbrushed family in a hot tub on a sunny day and it said, hot tub, £3,999, go on, you deserve it. And in that moment, that seemed like a fairly reasonable argument until John just said, no we don't. And he was right. I can't afford a hot tub, nor do I need one. That was the world's way of drawing me into its grubby little lie that I am the center of the universe, and what matters most is taking care of number one and being happy and satisfying whatever I want. In the soggy, dark Glasgow weather, far from home, feeling a little bit sorry for myself, that hot tub life seemed pretty reasonable to me. Maybe that's true for you sometimes when you're in the shops or on the beach or on the internet and you think, I want that. I deserve that. I'm going to take it. And before you know it, you're being swept away by it. The lesson of that little story from Glasgow is this. Don't wait to be told the lie of the world without any defenses. Get proactive about this and decide in your heart now to orient yourself towards the love of God and the following of his ways. Do it now. Set your eyes on the glory of Christ and on the glories of life with him and set your face like stone, not to be moved from its pursuit. We sometimes sing here, I think we might be singing it today, that I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. Live your life like that. Make your decision for Jesus. 
Third and final thing. Now we've got to live the life. The whole structure of the book of Ephesians, which, by the way, is a wonderful six chapters to read in 25 minutes over a cup of coffee, really encourage you, just maybe this afternoon or sometime this week, just grab yourself a cup of coffee and read through the book of Ephesians. It kind of works like this. The first three chapters, this is what Jesus has done for you. This is who you are in him. We've been reading and talking about that this morning. The second three chapters, now, now go and live like you know it. It kind of tells us to take off the old life like a, a used T-shirt and don't live for the world anymore. You've been saved for higher things. And then it tells us to put on this new life in Jesus. And it measures this by telling us to live for peace, where there is discord, create harmony, speak encouragement into people's lives, be generous and outward-looking, forgive people, let God deal with other people's hearts and attitudes, show preference to others. Instead of getting what you want and sleeping around and drinking to excess, it tells us that these are the ways of the world. Instead, exercise self-control and always be filled with the Holy Spirit. And above all, make the worship and glory of Jesus primary in every area of your life. In verse 10 of our passage today, it says, for we are God's handiwork. That's beautiful. We're created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God's prepared in advance for us to do. That means not putting number one first anymore. Stop being so self-protective and fearful and building up structures that might save your life but cost you your soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. Care for the poor the widow, the disadvantaged, the orphan, the abused, the sidelined, these are all things that we're involved in doing as a church, and I would love to help to connect you with some of this work. Maybe some of this work is work that God has prepared in advance for you to do. Just speak to me or email me or the office in the week, and I'll help to connect you with some of that stuff. And of course, speak like a witness. Tell the world the good news of Jesus. Tell the world that you no longer need to be dead in your sins, that Jesus' death and resurrection means that death is beaten. You don't have to live for yourself anymore. You are free to live as you were created. This is good news for people. I want to just finish by reading that same passage of Scripture that we've looked at this morning, Ephesians 2, but this time as it was rewritten by a writer called Eugene Peterson, who some of you will be familiar with as the author of The Message. I like this, and let this truth help to guide us from worldly to witnesses. He writes, It wasn't so long ago that you were mired in that old, stagnant life of sin, you let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell you how to live. You filled your lungs with polluted unbelief and then exhaled disobedience. We all did it, all of us doing what we felt like doing when we felt like doing it, all of us in the same boat. It's a wonder that God didn't lose his temper and do away with a lot of us. Instead, immense in mercy and with an incredible love, he embraced us. He took our sin-dead lives, and he made us alive with Christ. He did all of this on his own with no help from us. 
And then he picked us up and he sat us down in the highest heaven in company with Jesus, our Messiah. Think again on what we've been called to this morning, brothers and sisters. Death is beaten. Life in Jesus is available today. We no longer need to live as slaves of this world anymore. The curtain has been torn into, and the way to the Father is now open, and he invites you in. It's for you, and it's for all who will say yes to him. The evil one has been overcome, and you are warmly invited to be a son or daughter of God. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you are a good, good Father. You are perfect in all your ways. And I thank you that all the things that I've talked about this morning in my feeble attempt to try and describe you and the glories of Christ are rooted in the fact that you are love and that an overflow of your love means that you have preferred us. You have given us Jesus that we might be saved, set free, and brought into your family. And for that, we are so, so grateful. And we offer up our lives, our words, our songs, our actions, our work as sacrifice and worship to you this morning. King Jesus, I pray that you would open eyes and hearts again today. Lord, for some who might not yet know you, they would come to know you in fullness today. And for the rest of us who have these outlying areas of our lives which need to be wrestled back under your lordship, Holy Spirit, please strengthen us for that task, I pray, that the glorious Son might be glorified over all the earth. In Jesus' name. Amen.